0: guys welcome back to the gene panel podcast in today's episode we're going to be talking about antibodies and the antibody repertoire i'm adine i'm going to be mostly hosting this episode um but julian's here too along for the ride
1: yeah i'm just i'm just gonna be here
0: (laughs) yeah like i thought that it would be a good idea for me to mostly host this episode because i'm the one who's studying immunology um this episode is is kind of be talking is going to be talking about the genetic basis for the antibody repertoire. It's going to get a little bit dense, but it's really interesting to think about how our body like can basically respond to anything like in the world that could possibly cause disease. Your body has some antibody that could respond to it. Um, So we're going to be getting into like the deep genetics of why this is possible.
1: This is not my area of expertise, but I still find the subject matter really interesting. So,
0: I am not going to pretend this is my area of expertise, (laughs) but I'm going to try my best to. You
1: you know more. You're being humble. You're being humble.
0: Um. Yeah. (laughs) I um. I thought like a really cool way to talk about this subject would be to think about what would happen if like humans went to outer space and we somehow like picked up this alien pathogen. Like, could the human body respond to that? Julian's going to talk a little bit more about that soon. But kind of like before we get started, I thought it would be good to get rid of or get some important terminology out of the way. So for those who don't know, an antibody is a protein that's produced by the immune system that plays an important role in neutralizing pathogens. By the way, a pathogen is just anything that causes disease in humans. So like bacteria and viruses. Um, but and all bacteria by- are bad. But yes. No, yeah, no, they're not. The
1: pathogenic ones
0: are bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we might do a future episode about our good bacteria. Oh, for but sure. But sure. until then, um, yeah, in this context, we're talking about bacteria as pathogens and disease causing agents. Um, and antibodies neutralize these by binding to the antigens on pathogens. Um, and they also bind to receptors in the host. Uh, to yep. mediate their functions yeah
1: basically an antigen is just like uh, think of it as just kind of like a, a a cue for the antibody to recognize the pathogen where it's like okay I recognize this protein or or portion of the the pathogen and then I can act on it
0: yeah and like elicit a larger immune response and if you want to get like really technical about it an epitope is the part of an antigen that an antibody can bind to so you might have like a massive protein That is an antigen, but there's, like, a specific sequence that antibodies can actually bind to, and that's the epitope. Um, Basically, this episode is just going to be, like, just touching on how extremely multifunctional antibodies are. It's impossible to talk about all the interesting things related to antibody function and the uses in the body in like a half hour podcast. So but just stuff, suffice yeah. to say that antibodies are an invaluable addition to our adaptive immune systems and have likely saved you from countless illnesses in your lifetime. Take it away, Julian.
1: Yeah. So, um, as Adeen was mentioning earlier, uh, a cool way to kind of start this off would be to talk about the possibility of alien antigens and kind of an alien infectious bacteria basically so while we were doing our research uh, a dean actually found this really cool youtube video that I be- yeah it's, i believe it's a youtube video right
0: yeah it's a youtube video on vox's youtube channel you guys should check it out
1: yeah and it talks about how astronauts quarantine and it's really cool because it's something you don't really think about when you think about nasa or space exploration you don't really you don't really I, I didn't really know that astronauts had a quarantine when they got back and it's really interesting because it makes you it kind of opens your eyes to how big of a, of a team you need to actually go out to outer space right it's not like it's not just the engineers it's not just the astronauts it's it's a bunch of scientists and, and even immunologists behind the scenes also
0: immunology is everywhere bro as soon as you embrace this <laughs> your life changes.
1: So basically, they take various, various me- measures to prevent the spread of a potentially unknown bug. So, for example, while they're on the moon, right, and they're collecting samples, they make sure to, to tightly seal them and keep them in a special area. And they don't, they don't really mess with it until they get back. And obviously, when the astronauts get back, they, they, they have to themselves also quarantine. So they wear these quarantine suits when they get there. And they spray a bunch of chemicals on each other. And even after that, they have to isolate in a facility where everything there is basically kept sterile. And any staff or person who is let in to see the astronauts or interact with them in any way, they have to pass a bunch of of screening tests, you know, showing that they're healthy. And they have things like an ultraviolet shower, bunch of things. Yeah, just to give you an example, um, Neil Armstrong and his crew quarantined for 21 days in his arrival, and cool fact that I actually didn't know, they actually celebrated his birthday in quarantine, which is a cool story, I guess, but, you know.
0: I think it's something that a lot of people can relate to right now. Oh,
1: yeah, that's true. That's true. So there you go, guys. For those of you who have birthdays right now, you know, Neil Armstrong did it, and you could kind of, you know... (laughs) You're not alone. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, so they're in this quarantine facility and and if there was any type of contamination breach, then anyone who's associated with them would also have to quarantine for however much time based on, on what NASA says, right? Anyway, so the whole point of this was just to kind of show that even in in an area like space travel and, and, and space engineering, you have to think about immunology, which is really cool.
0: Um, yeah, it's also kind of cool that, I don't know, it's kind of like we always question if there's life in outer space mm-hmm. and this precaution is taken even though, I don't know, it's often talked about that there is no life on the moon and things like that, but they took the precaution, like bacteria is life, of course, um, of course. it has the potential to cause disease or it could be like one of the beneficial bacteria that you were talking about. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was kind of like this nod to that there might be life on the moon, yeah. which I think was cool. Of course.
1: And I'm actually not too sure on this, but I I think I I do recall reading um, about, I believe it was in Mars, that they found um, a compound that is known to be produced by living organisms. So either there are microorganisms in Mars or there used to be. So it's, it's highly possible.
0: That's super cool.
1: Yeah. And kind of jumping off of that whole immunologist's being part of the uh, space team, I guess you could say. Uh, One of the pioneers in this area, because this area, you know, it's not very intuitive to think about, right? Well, there was this guy called Joshua Lederberg, who was actually more well-known for his work in bacterial genetics and artificial intelligence as well. I think he actually, yeah, he actually won the Nobel Prize in physiology and medicine in 1958 for bacterial conjugation, which is a really cool topic. Maybe we'll we'll get to that later, (laughs) but anyways in this particular field of, of, of space immunology, I guess you could call it, he actually came up with a term for that called exobiology. And now it's called astrobiology. And it's basically a branch of science that deals with life in space. And he was one of the first people to kind of show concern for not only the quarantine aspect of it for the astronauts, but also the preservation and the practice of, of, of safe sample collecting um, in space, right? for example, like, uh, biochemical analysis of, of the soil there. And this was as early as 1957, which is, you know, a while ago. So this is pretty impressive stuff. He's, he was way ahead of his time. And he even uh, called out the issue of interplanetary quarantine, which is even, foof, like, further beyond. But I thought that was pretty
0: Yeah, that's, cool. like, beyond, like, where we are right now. Yeah. Yeah, so Joshua Lederberg was pretty ahead of his time. And it kind of, like, leads us to think about how would the immune, res- the immune system respond to an alien antigen? I mean, in my opinion, and I'm pretty sure this is understood by immunologists, that fighting pathogens that are from space would probably be really similar to how we fight pathogens here on Earth. And this is because of a key principle of DNA. DNA is universal. As far as we know, all biological organisms in the universe are made up of the same DNA nucleotides, RNA nucleotides, And therefore would have the same protein and lipid and carbohydrate molecules as us or as life on this planet would um, which is what antibodies respond to antibodies respond to lipids proteins and carbohydrates so we can expect that it would be pretty much the same thing so this kind of leads us into what are antibodies if you've taken any type of biology related subject you probably know that humans have two arms of immunity the innate and adaptive immune system. The adaptive immune system comprises of two major cell types, which are T cells and B cells. B cells are our antibody producers, and they can develop into plasma cells in the event of an infection, which are extremely important in creating massive antibody responses.
1: And correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe that the whatever antibody that the B cell produces, the and if it goes on to become a plasma cell, it'll produce the same antibody but this time in mass
0: right yeah yeah totally and um another like important thing to note is that b cells only produce one type of antibody or like one antibody specificity so it's not like oh a b cell will produce an antibody that will respond to an e coli antigen as well as like a staph antigen it's it's like one antibody so the antibody is a protein and it has four protein chains, two are called the light chains, and two are the heavy chains. Each heavy chain and each light chain have a constant and variable region. The polypeptide chains in antibodies are structured in 3D space so that they, are, they have variable regions. Um, oh, sorry. So that the heavy and light chain variable regions associate together to create what is known as an antigen binding site. There are two antigen binding sites on an antibody and these are complementary to specific epitopes on antigens like we were talking about before
1: yeah right one of the really really great things about antibodies is that they're they have high specificity for different antigens
0: yeah absolutely it's probably like the most important thing about antibodies is how specific they are um and so like therefore antigen binding sites are essential in allowing antibodies to bind to pathogens and their toxins and carry out their functions once bound, antibodies can lead to a number of things that, such as making bacteria clump together in a process, process called agglutination, or facilitating the uptake of pathogens by phagocytes, which are cells that kind of like engulf bacteria and try like to destroy them. Yeah, exactly like Pac-Man.
1: Yeah, maybe like Pac-Man just eating harmful stuff inside your body.
0: <laughs> yeah, Very cool. It is cool. Yeah, um, if you want to be an M nerd like me. um and it kind of just like makes us realize how interesting antibodies are i'm gonna let julian talk about that though
1: yeah sure so again besides the specificity one of the the specificity kind of goes hand in hand with this other topic which is how diverse antibodies can be so kind of how adine mentioned earlier with the heavy and light chains these are variable regions so there's a lot of different combinations you can have which leads to a variety of different antibodies that are specific to a variety of different things which and, and this is really useful not only in our own immune system but also in for example developing vaccines or or you can you can even use them to 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 do research in the lab as i'll later go on to talk about later and um or, or even for example like now right with SARS-CoV-2 a completely new never never-before-seen virus, right? There, there's certain people who have been found to actually be more or less immune to it. And I believe... I don't remember exactly. I think you might know more about this, Adine, but I believe they did some sort of maybe temporary measure similar to a vaccine where they take the blood of a person who is known to be immune and then they inject it into someone else. Is that correct?
0: Um, I think of it yeah, later. I mean, in essence, I think that's what happened. I don't know exactly... Um, the study or clinical trial that mm-hmm. you're talking about. I mean, I definitely remember seeing oh, it. I just, I just heard that, about it. I remember. I heard yeah, about it. that people were doing antibody transfusions. That's what um, it was, yeah, antibody yeah, transfusions. Which we're going to like talk on or touch on again later. But basically, like antibodies are really essential in immunity. And what's even cooler about antibodies is that we can we can share them among each other like through blood transfusions and stuff and Mm -hmm. we don't really have to deal with the same issues as like how i don't know you might think that an organ would be rejected antibodies don't have that same problem
1: so now that we kind of know the general structure of antibodies and and why they're so unique and interesting let's discuss how on earth is it possible for millions of molecules with exactly the same structure from this from the same genes can show such extensive diversity, right? Because again, antibodies are really diverse. So to help us kind of find that out, we're gonna take a look at ourselves, right? Specifically our B cells, right? The ones that produce the, um, the antibodies, right? So in humans, what happens is we have these cells called lymphoid progenitor cells, which come from our bone marrow, and then they go on to mature into the functional B cells. And this maturation process from lymphoid progenitor to B cell is what contains the answer to our question of why it is that antibodies can be so diverse. Okay, and to start, we can talk about somatic recombination. Now, I know that word sounds a little complicated, but it's not as bad as it sounds. Well, it's actually, it can be complicated, but for now, we're just gonna like talk about it pretty base level, and we can cover recombination later because it's a pretty important process that comes up a lot in genetics, so let's just break it down in a simple manner so first let's talk about the somatic portion of it so somatic just refers to cells that are not reproducible or or germline so basically any cell that does not give rise to the egg or the sperm these cells contain two copies of each chromosome and can differentiate to acquire tissue specific characteristics for example they can become skin cells they can become muscle cells they can become a bunch of different types of cells not just the uh, the reproducible ones. And then recombination refers to the process by which pieces of DNA are broken and mixed or recombined together. And it's kind of like the big diversity factor in not only this, but a lot of other processes.
0: So somatic recombination in the maturing B cell starts at the heavy chain gene. There are two alleles at the heavy chain gene, Um, And at one allele, or at each allele, there are four sections of the gene. There's a V-region, which stands for variable, a a J-region, which stands for junction, and a D-region, which stands for diversity. And there's a C-region for a constant region. At each of these regions, there are many segments. So the V-region has many V-segments, and the J has many J-segments, and so on. Yeah, so
1: you can kind of like mix and match the segments, basically different yeah, segments exactly. which leads to diversity it's, like, it's
0: kind of like lego yeah. um as the b cell develops the heavy chain gene kind of like undergoes this recombination event um that we're going to look like as julian said talk about in more detail hopefully in a future episode but like just as a brief introduction here recomb- recombination of the heavy chain gene um kind of begins with this random d segment joining with a random j segment and this process is known as DJ recombination
1: yeah because previously the segments aren't they're not like right next to each other they're separated still So the recombination yeah. brings them together and and you're, you're putting the Legos. It's like the process of putting the Legos together
0: Um, Like if you have like piles of Legos yeah in all different colors you like just choose one of each color and that's DJ and then following the successful DJ recombination a random V segment is selected and associate associates with the newly formed dj segment if the vdj recombination is successful the second allele will be inhibited from undergoing this same process in a process known as allelic exclusion and um this recombined gene goes on to be transcribed and translated like much like any other gene in your cells and the polypeptide then becomes a protein that'll be the heavy chain of the antibody yeah Um, It's important to note that your immune system has lots of fail-safes. If the recombination fails to make a viable heavy chain in this allele, it just tries again with the other one. And if neither of these work, your immune system just kills the cell. So another recombination event occurs at the light chain locus. And in the same way, this light chain has two alleles. And the difference here is that there's no diversity region at the light chain. So there are only V and J segments. And just as we said before, at the V and J regions of this gene, there are many, many, many V segments and many J segments. So a random V segment is joined with a random J segment in the gene, and the gene is transcribed and translated, just like as we said before, and this 3D polypeptide will become the light chain. Okay, so we've kind of covered already how um, this combination of different segments uh, creates diversity, Um, and that creates a lot of diversity in its own right, but there are elements of this that make it even more variable. So recombination creates diversity as well in the fact that there are two regions in every V segment that are highly variable. They contain a highly variable combination of DNA bases, and these are called the complementarity determining regions. So these have a really vital role in ensuring that the proteins that make up your antibodies are truly complementary to the antigens that they're trying to bind to. There's also a third CDR, which is um, particularly variable because it spreads across the V and J segments. So the other two CDRs are within a V segment, mm-hmm. but the third CDR is at this junction, and Of course, like when two segments of DNA come together, they're already like different. So there's variability in that sense. But also during recombination, there are enzymes that add extra nucleotides here um, to create even more diversity. So in summary, there are three CDRs on the heavy chain. There are three CDRs on the light chain. And the six of these are at an antigen binding site. And they are creating this complementarity to an antigen, which is really important.
1: Yeah, that's just like the Um, specificity portion of it for antibodies. Yeah,
0: yeah, they're really important for specificity. Um, And I guess just like in general, creating this like really unique antigen binding site. Mm -hmm. Um, Just to like note, we haven't really been talking about it too much. But just like reiterate that there are two antigen binding sites on an antibody. And they're exactly the same. So there are six CDRs at each antigen binding site, but there are 12 in one antibody.
1: Yeah. I mean, basically, I guess we could just say that there's various levels of, of diversity here in the in the making of the antibodies. Because yeah. you have the, the recombination, mixing up the DNA pieces together. You have the regions themselves that are being mixed together can be different from each other. And then... mixing and matching of different heavy and light chains as well so a lot of diversity going on here
0: so just to like elaborate on that point a bit more about the association of the heavy and the light chain you can kind of imagine how much diversity this can really create because if the heavy chain undergoes its whole random recombination event and the light chain undergoes its own recombination event that are completely independent to each other when these two independent Um, independently formed chains come together they create this um, molecule that's also super diverse and at the antigen binding region they come together and they add a layer of diversity that allows the antibody to bind to things that maybe it otherwise could not have um, been able to bind to if say it only had the antigen specificity that was generated at the heavy chain or only the antigen specificity that was generated at the light chain
1: yeah it's both so now that we've talked about how and why it is that antibodies are so diverse and specific we can start talking about why this is so important well of course them being very diverse and specific helps us in fighting many many different diseases and pathogens but antibodies are also useful in other contexts for example in the lab antibodies can be used in many different laboratory techniques to solve many different problems and answer many questions For example, one such technique that I want to talk about is called CHIP, uh, and it stands for chromatin immunoprecipitation. And it's an important tool, particularly in genetics labs and other labs too, like biochemistry labs, for example. So chromatin is the complex of DNA with histone proteins that help package it. So basically just think of it as It's a way to condense DNA because DNA is actually a very, very long molecule and we have to somehow fit it inside of of our body and inside of all of our cells, right? So we have to have a way of making it more compact and that's that's, that's where the chromatin and the histone proteins come in. And then immunoprecipitation just refers to the process of kind of pulling down and bringing down a protein of interest along with anything that's associated with that protein. So basically, The purpose of chromatin immunoprecipitation is to elucidate a certain function of a protein. Um, Let's say, for example, we know of the existence of a specific protein, but we don't know what it does, right? Well, let's say through other experiments we find out that this protein likes to bind to DNA. Well, the next question we would ask would be, well where in the dna is it binding to is it binding to a specific sequence in the dna is it binding to a specific region in the dna well chip can help with that what you do first is you use this chemical called formaldehyde to cross-link protein dna complexes and basically what that means is that you're adding this chemical so that throughout the laboratory procedure the protein that's associated to the dna doesn't pop off right so that it stays linked to the DNA after that you have to break up the cell because the DNA of interest is located inside of the nucleus of the cell so you have to break through the membrane to access that DNA afterwards we want to break up the DNA into many different small pieces either through mechanical means such as a process called sonication that mechanically breaks down DNA randomly or through enzymes that can specifically cut pieces of DNA at specific locations. After we've cut our DNA, we can finally immunoprecipitate the DNA with the protein. And the reason why we cut the DNA is because it just makes it easier in pulling down the protein of interest, you know? Instead of dealing with the whole DNA segment, we can just deal with it in little pieces. It just makes life a little bit easier. Anyways, again, after you cut the DNA, we can actually pull down the protein. And this is where the antibodies come in. We can use antibodies specific to the protein of interest that's bound to the DNA to kind of pull down the protein that's associated to the DNA. Once we pull that down, we can reverse the cross link so that we can unbind the protein from the DNA and then look at the DNA. And we can do lots of things with the DNA. For example, we can sequence the DNA to see what nucleotides are present if if the protein is binding to DNA in a specific manner, for example. And this is just one example of of using antibodies in the lab. There are so many more ways you can use antibodies in the lab to do so many different things. Honestly, a really good tool. And, of course, antibodies are also very important when it comes to disease.
0: Like, based on what we've talked about so far, you might be wondering, like, how can humans ever die of disease? Like, our antibody systems are so cool and they're so powerful and they're so specific to literally anything that we could ever encounter even like possibly like a space pathogen? Mm -hmm. Why would humans ever die from something that we could encounter here on Earth? Well, there are lots of reasons. And probably the biggest one that I would want to outline here is your immune system is a really, really, really complex network of different reactions and different um, processes that are all going on at the same time. And Sometimes, like, you'll watch videos about, like, the immune system and stuff, and they'll talk about it as, like, an army, and that's kind of true. Like, if you think about, like, what your immune system has to do, it can easily, like, destroy your body. It can, like, um, kind of wear itself out. Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, one of the things that is probably the biggest reason why humans... Uh, can die of disease is because some people have immunodeficiency and that's something that has been kind of in the news a bit lately. Yeah, Um, Immunodeficiency is kind of just like an umbrella term for people who are kind of in a like their immune system is in such a condition that they don't necessarily have like the same amount of um, immune capabilities as other people. Um, like if you think about it, what we've been talking about is our adaptive immune systems, which are necessary for, uh, really ridding the body of disease. And if your B cells and T cells aren't functioning properly, mm-hmm. if they are damaged, you won't really have enough antibodies that can even be produced. Um, a really like key element that we didn't really touch on here is that B cells require T cell help. To be activated to produce antibodies. And say you have a disease like HIV, um, your T cells aren't functioning and your B cells won't be activated in the same way that they would normally be if you weren't undergoing that yeah. Um, disease. Yeah, which so really like, really important.
1: Yeah, I think that really like goes with what you said of, of it's a very complex network of interactions that are all kind of linked together. So if one thing goes wrong, it could affect other things too. Yeah. And this kind of immunodeficiency problem can also lead to people being immunocompromised, right? So if your immune system isn't working, you're actually more susceptible to catching different p- illnesses, um, which is you know a particular problem right now. You've probably heard a lot in the news um, that you know older people and also people who are already sick, you know, immunocompromised people are the most susceptible to to getting uh, COVID nineteen symptoms and and all that stuff. And again, I think we, we didn't touch on it yet, but also age has a uh, has a lot a uh, large factor to do with it. So, as you grow older, you become this thing called immunosenescent. Which basically just means that your immune system just doesn't work as properly as it used to when you were younger. Um however, there are ways to kind of limit this, you know, if you stay relatively healthy throughout your life and you're going out and and being active even as you're older, then you know, you're not as frail, you're not as prone to it, but it is still a thing. And it's just kind of a thing that just comes naturally with age, I guess.
0: So another thing to kind of think about is just because we have antibodies made for everything like that we can possibly think of, doesn't mean that an antibody is gonna elicit uh, a huge immune response just because it's encountered something. There are substances or antigens, that antibodies will bind to, and they won't kick off a huge immune response. The way I like to think about it is your immune response is really dangerous. Like, as I was talking about, like, your immune system being like an army, you don't want to, like, declare war if it's not necessary. Mm -hmm. So, like, lots of the time, your antibodies will bind to things, but it's not about to trip the switch to have, like, this huge immune response that'll deprive the body of resources. Actually,
1: correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's how allergies work, right? That antibodies are binding to things that aren't necessarily pathogenic?
0: Yeah. And you're eliciting um, an
1: immune response that isn't, you know, necessary, really. Allergy
0: is a really interesting concept. I I think it's not antibodies. It's mast cells. It's basically, Uh, but, like, what you're saying is correct in that, like, when your body responds to something that isn't dangerous right. it can be like that's more of a danger mm-hmm. if you're having an allergic response to something like a peanut that isn't about to like be a it's not a pathogen mm-hmm. your body like can kill itself right because sometimes your body really, goes really into really
1: right because your body sometimes goes into a full shutoff mode to like prevent further damage which can actually be even worse like you're saying
0: yeah Totally.
1: Especially when it's something that isn't necessarily a bad thing.
0: Yeah. So the immune system has like a lot of regulation. Um, and it's important to remember that an immune response in itself is a danger. So as we've, we've kind of like touched on it a little bit throughout this episode that COVID-19 is probably the biggest, um, pathogen threat that we're facing right now. And like we said, antibodies do exist for COVID. um, Even though it's a completely new virus, your body, if you're infected with COVID, most likely will create an antibody response. And for some of the reasons that we've mentioned already, people still succumb to the disease for things like age, immunodeficiency, being immunocompromised, and a whole host of other issues. Right, because a lot Um, of people
1: who who actually get COVID-19 survive. It's only in yeah. a portion of the population where we're seeing a problem because, yeah, because of the things you mentioned earlier, the age, immunodeficiency, being immunocompromised.
0: Yeah, I think I even saw something that was like um, people, like when your immune system reacts too much, mm-hmm. um, it's like a, a possible reason for death. Um, and we haven't really talked about it because... Um, antibodies are just so much more of a topical subject but um this is where your t-cells come in like with viruses and stuff so um primarily your antibodies will be involved in a viral response but it's really your t-cells that are handling this so don't blame it on the antibodies
1: I um think if we mentioned it earlier but uh, and, and like towards the beginning of the episode we talked about kind of this t- temporary solution for covid19 where people can actually receive antibodies for the virus from from the plasma or basically the the blood of people who have been infected with the virus and have survived. Because just by having the antibodies in your bloodstream, it should be enough to confer immunity. You know, you, you might, you, you'll get it, but your body will be able to fight it off better. And
0: yeah, this is like a lot of vaccinations work. Um, right? Yeah, for some vaccinations, mm-hmm. it's called like passive immunization. And yeah, it's just like, Passively giving you the ability to fight off an infection, but like without you actually really having to face the full brunt of being infected with that pathogen.
1: Right, right. And so you might be thinking, well, if that's the case, why isn't everyone already being vaccinated with with the antibodies? Well, antibodies are well, they're proteins, and proteins they do degrade in potentially a matter of months. So again, this is a, this would be a temporary solution. So. That's one of the reasons.
0: Yeah, and we kind of already see this with newborn babies. Um, Newborn babies have a really, really underdeveloped immune system. And it's kind of one of the reasons that new mothers are uh, encouraged to breastfeed their babies, because um, antibodies are transferred through breast milk to the baby. And that kind of lets them have some semblance of an immune system while they're own immune systems are still developing
1: right because when you're born it's not like your immune system is already at its peak right it, yeah. it takes a little time to develop and so the antibodies in the breast milk kind of help uh as a temporary defense while your immune system developing yeah
0: and yeah. i think like we could even like say that there are some pretty big ethical considerations if we were about to like start harvesting covid survivors mm-hmm. for antibodies it's kind <laughs> of messed up
1: eh, maybe I-, I will say with the um with the acquiring antibodies through breast milk thing, uh, I do know, and I have read that some scientists have kind of warned against the use of of baby formula, because again, a lot of the things you acquire as you're when you're you know a newborn and you're and you're developing come from your mother's breast milk, and this also this not only includes antibodies, but there are also a lot of um, beneficial bacteria which we also receive from our mothers, which I think we could actually talk about later in the microbiology episode, but basically just saying that, you know, sometimes using baby formula isn't, isn't um, too, how do I say, uh, like it's not recommended too much just because the likelihood of the baby formula having all the antibodies and, and bacteria that you require aren't too high because it's something we don't really understand too well yet actually. And again, it's a type of a band-aid solution. There's a lot of clinical risk and like Aideen was saying, there's a lot of ethical considerations. But um, I think it's still a cool thing to talk about and think about because it can lead to you know later solutions. And um, that basically wraps up today's episode. Anything you would like to add, Aideen?
0: Um, Not too much. I guess I would just like wanna like really hammer home the like three things that we've talked about with antibodies. Like diversity is generated in so many different ways in antibodies. Yeah. And it's all really interesting. We've tried our best to touch on all these different ways um, in this podcast episode, but there are so many things that we don't understand yet. I definitely don't understand it as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think also like experts in the field don't fully understand all the complexities with antibodies and um, the amazing things that they do to keep humans alive. And I hope that we were kind of able to show you why they're so interesting and I hope you understood why diversity or how diversity is generated. I guess if you have any questions just let us know and like we can point you in the right direction for some resources. I know this episode was kind of dense but really appreciate you guys getting to the end and um, really like putting the effort into trying to understand like why these are so cool and useful.
1: And once again thank you for listening and tuning in to this month's episode of the Gene Panel podcast, and join us again next month where we will talk about GMOs, otherwise known as genetically modified organisms.